Well, thank you to Gary for leading us in our worship of God this morning. Thank you to Gail uh, for speaking to our children so faithfully from God's Word. And could I ask you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 uh, is the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. It's the passage that contains the parable of the midnight friend, uh, perhaps not one that is as familiar as some of the others that we've looked at, uh, but we have already prayed that God would be pleased to add His blessing to the reading of His perfect, inerrant, authoritative Word, and that He would bless the preaching of it as we consider this passage together. Now, last week we looked at the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, and we saw on that occasion that Jesus was teaching us through the parable two things about prayer. Number one, that just like the widow, we are to come in humble dependence upon God in persistent prayer. And then we saw secondly that in contrast to that unjust judge, that God is a a righteous God. He is a righteous Father who delights in the prayers of His children and He delights to answer our prayers. So as we think a little bit about prayer again this morning and we think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ while He was here on earth, we find that prayer formed a major part of His life and prayer was an important theme in His teaching. Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh, fully God and yet fully man. And and even though he was perfect in every way, undefiled by sin, with, with none of the sinful weaknesses and shortcomings that we have, yet he depended on the Holy Spirit to sustain him daily in his earthly ministry. And so Jesus made it a priority to spend quality time with his Father in prayer every day. Sometimes it was early in the morning. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we read, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Sometimes we read about it being late in the day, Matthew 14, verse 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So whether it was early before a a busy day or in the evening after a full day of ministry, Jesus made it a priority to pray to his heavenly Father. So prayer was a crucial element, a daily element of Jesus' communion and relationship with his Father. And the disciples who were with Jesus for three years came to see this. The prayer life of Jesus was different to the prayer life of most Jews. It was not something Jesus did mechanically uh, at specific times of the day. It was not something that he did according to religious norms and standards, but it was something that Jesus did willingly, regularly, passionately, intimately, and they also would have seen the strength and the peace which Jesus derived from his time in prayer with his Father. And so then we come to the situation that we have before us in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus, we are told, had been praying. And when he had finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
And I think what the context implies is, Lord, teach us how to pray like you do. There was something about the prayer life of Jesus which attracted the disciples. They, they wanted to know and experience the same kind of, of intimate relationship with God which they were witnessing in Jesus. And so they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so let me just pause at this point and, and ask you to think about this. Are, are others being drawn to God through your prayer life? Is your prayer life such a, a vibrant and, and crucial part of your day, such an important part of, of who you are and, and how you function on a daily basis, that others are being drawn to you to share in and, and learn from your relationship with God? My prayer is that that would be true of all of us as we grow in our relationship with God. So prayer would become something so vibrant, so uh, integral to the way that we live our lives as Christians. Well, in verses 2 to 4, we, we see that Jesus taught them what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, it's, it's the disciples' prayer. This is how Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And, and we've looked at this previously in, in 2019, two years ago, when we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount as we considered the Lord's Prayer in some detail in Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through to 13. And so we aren't going to go over that in detail again today. I would encourage you to download those six sermons that Dave Burkholst and I preached through on the Lord's Prayer, which are available uh, on our church website, if you missed that. But this morning, I want us to consider not so much the how of praying, or the structure of prayer as Jesus taught his disciples, but rather to focus on the attitude of our hearts to prayer. You see, if our attitude to prayer is, is wrong or, or misplaced, if the motivation of our heart to prayer is, is off base, then the how of praying, the, the mechanics of praying, the discipline of praying will often be misunderstood and misapplied in our lives. It is important to remember that up to this time, prayer had largely been reduced to a, a kind of formal liturgical praying done by the priests in the synagogues and the temples. It was formal, it was traditional, it was very structured, and it often involved very mechanical kind of verbatim repetitions being offered up to God. And yes, we do certainly see some wonderful, genuine, personal prayers in the Old Testament. We see prayers from David as you read the Psalms, or Nehemiah, or many of the prophets, Nevertheless, the, the concept of God's holiness, God's otherness in the Old Testament was one which meant that the people could not simply approach God in prayer as we do today. Because the law of Moses required that a sinner could only approach God through the, the mediating work of a priest as he carried out the sacrificial requirements of the law on their behalf. And so there was a, a sense, a, an intended sense of, of distance, of, of separation between a holy God and sinful people. A God who sits on his throne in the heavens and sinful men and women who are on the earth who, 
who don't just have access into his presence, but need to come to God through a series of, of washings and, and sacrifices and priestly mediation in order to communicate with God. But what the disciples were witnessing in the life of Jesus was something very different. They witnessed a spontaneous relationship-based communication between Jesus and God, praying as Jesus communed in a very natural and intimate way with his heavenly Father, regularly, personally, uh, in, a, in a sense of genuine, intimate fellowship. This would have been completely foreign to what they would have seen in the praying that took place in religious Judaism. And so there was more to Jesus' instruction here than just how to pray or, or what to pray. What his disciples needed to be taught was about having the right attitude to God in prayer, which is why Jesus tells them the parable that we have recorded in verses 5 and onwards. So let's spend a bit of time this morning considering the parable. Jesus tells them a story which they would have all been able to identify with. They lived in a culture where we're offering hospitality uh, to traveling friends and even to traveling strangers was, was ingrained into their thinking, into their culture. And so we have a situation here where a friend arrives at your doorstep at midnight after a long day of traveling long distance. He needs a place to sleep for the night. He needs some food to eat so that he has the strength to continue on his journey the next day. But you were not expecting your friend. There were, there were no cell phones in those days or emails or, or WhatsApp messages. And so when this friend suddenly arrives, you realize that you have no food to give him. Perhaps it was the end of the month, salty crack time, and, and there's nothing in the house. And so you get up and you welcome him in, and, and while he's taking a hot shower, you quickly rush out to the 24-hour convenience store at the corner garage to get some food. Of course not. There, there was no such thing. No, instead, what you have to do is you have to go to your neighbor, a friend of, the, uh, a friend of yours who may not be your friend for that much longer, but nevertheless, you go to your friend next door and you wake him up at midnight and you ask him if he could please lend you three small loaves of bread to be able to feed your unexpected traveling friend. Now, in those days, a, a typical Jewish house consisted of one large room, and uh, it was a room which really was the kitchen and the lounge and the bedroom all in one. And so after supper and all the food stuff would have been cleared away and packed away, then mats would have been thrown on the floor and the family would typically all sleep together under one large blanket. And so your request for your neighbor to now give you some bread at midnight is one which will come at quite a cost of inconvenience to him and his family. He would need to get up. He would have to light a lamp. He would have to go and find the bread, unbolt the door, and then give it to you, and then do everything in reverse as he goes back to bed. This was certainly something very inconvenient, very disruptive to him and his whole family. And so it's no surprise then that Jesus tells us that the friend said, listen, don't bother me. The, the door is shut. My children are in bed with me. They, they're asleep. I can't get up now and give you anything. 
And I think we can all understand something of the, the frustration and the discomfort of such an event. But then look at what Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you, though this friend of yours will not get up and give you anything because he is your friend, yet because of your impudence, he will rise and give you whatever you need. Now, the, the old NIV uses the word boldness here, where the ESV says impudence. The Christian Standard Bible says, yet because of his friends, shameless boldness. And that probably is the, the closest English translation. The Greek conveys something here of a, a persistence or an even shamelessness, which is why the, the ESV uses a word that we don't use too much today, impudence. Shameless boldness, which ultimately results in the friend just getting up out of bed to give the man, to give you whatever it is that was needed. And so there are, are three things I think that Jesus is wanting us to learn from this parable and then his subsequent teaching about our attitude to prayer. And the first is that we are to be bold in our praying. Verse 8. Now, because of our sinfulness, this idea of coming to God with, with boldness is one which we, we have no right to explore on our own terms. You and I have no inherent right or qualification or worth to come before God with boldness. Absolutely none whatsoever. But this is a truth which was previously hidden, which Jesus now presents, which he lays bare before us by means of this parable in which we see that Jesus is the only one who has the right to teach us about this boldness in prayer because of who he is and what he came to do. You see, Jesus comes here at the, the pinnacle, the, the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament priestly service. He comes to us as the pinnacle of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it is through his death and his resurrection, which is about to take place in, in the days to come, that will usher in an entirely new era of a relationship between God, who is holy, and his people, who are sinful. An age which you and I now, as believers, Enjoy, which, which gives us a newfound boldness to come before the holy God of heaven, not because of anything of worth or value in and of ourselves, but because of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter one, sorry, Ephesians chapter two, verse 13 to 18, and Ephesians chapter three, verse 11 and 12, that those who are now in Christ, we have a boldness and an access with confidence to God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We have access through one spirit to the Father. Previously, Access to God was restricted. God could only be accessed through this whole series of religious washings and, and sacrifices and then through the mediation of a priest on, on your behalf. But now you and I have boldness to come directly to God himself in prayer and we can call directly on him as our heavenly father. 
What an incredible blessing it is for, for us to be living on this side of the cross. A, a blessing which the Old Testament saints longed to have. To know once and for all that their sins are forgiven. To know that they would have permanent access into the Holy of Holies at any time of the, the night or day. To come before God with, with boldness. This is a, a dramatically foreign concept to an Old Testament saint. But it's something that we enjoy knowing that we come found in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And because of all that He has done, we are accepted before the Father. What a privilege. Yet how sad it is then to see our attitude to prayer is one which is so often reveals that we don't really take this incredible privilege and access to God seriously. We don't value our relationship with God as we ought. If we did, we would be praying more often. This is another one of those parables where the, the clarity and, and the impact of what Jesus is trying to teach us is, is found not so much in the details of the parable itself, but rather in contrasting the characters in the parable with God. In the parable, Jesus is showing us that even this neighbor who is asleep at midnight, locked up in his house, he will get up and give you what you request because of your boldness. How much more then, Jesus says, will God who, who never sleeps, God who is no longer locked away in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind all kinds of layers of, of religious structures and sacrifices, how much more will God not answer your prayers? We're going to come back to this a little bit later. But in the second place, we, we, we learn that we are to also be determined in our praying. We, we are to be bold in our praying, verse 8, and we are to be determined in our praying, verse 9 and 10. And this second point overlaps somewhat with what we looked at last week when we considered the persistent widow uh, before the unjust judge. And we, we learned that God was calling us to be persistent in prayer. But here we see something more about the heart attitude behind that persistence, that you and I need to pray with determination. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, or so I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. We must see here that verse 9 and 10 is the outworking, it's the application of verse 8. Verse 8 says that because of the man's impudence, because of the man's shameful boldness, his friend will get up and give him whatever he needs. And so most of the translations start verse 9 with, So, so I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Now, the Greek uses three verbs here, and they are three verbs which are firstly commands to obey, but they are also commands that are given to us in the present continuous tense. 
So let's try and kind of put that into English. So I tell you, says Jesus, ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and it will be opened to you. Now we must, I think, be very careful here to to not take this verse out of its immediate context and in this parable, nor out of the immediate context in which Jesus is teaching his disciples on prayer. These verses are not a blanket check to supply whatever your heart desires, as some people have interpreted this. Nor are they a guarantee that, that every door of opportunity that you desire and, and knock on will, will open to you and, and your dreams will be fulfilled. No, the context in which Jesus said this was one of genuine need. The man in the parable has been put into a real predicament uh, of need at midnight as his friend arrives unannounced. And so he goes to the neighbor to ask for him to meet his needs. The three loaves that he asks for here were, were small loaves of bread. They would be more like our bread rolls today. And so his request for three loaves was not for personal gain and, and self-enrichment. No, this was really the standard amount of bread that would have been consumed by a person after a day of traveling. If this man's visitor had been a teenager, the midnight request would perhaps have been for a bowl of Cocoa Pops. At least in our house, that's how it would have gone down. Well, in verse 8, Jesus makes it clear that the neighbor will arise and give the man exactly what he needs. And then Jesus immediately goes on in verse 9 to say, So, in the same way, we must come to God with boldness, with determination, and we must present our needs to him. Ask is the first of these verbs, these imperatives, these commands. Ask is the, the wonderful invitation for us to come to God in prayer and to present him with our requests, with our needs. James picks up on this in James chapter 4, where he says that we do not have because we do not ask. And, and sometimes when we do ask, we also don't receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. Not to meet our needs, but to spend it on our passions. And so God's command to us here is that we should ask. And we should keep on asking. It's, it's a wonderful call to bring our requests before the Lord. Remembering that, that God is our heavenly Father. He is perfect in all His ways. He knows what is best for His children. And so He will not simply just give in to any and all of our requests. But He delights to answer those requests which He knows will meet our needs. So he says, ask and keep on asking. Be determined in your asking and you will receive from God what you need. And then Jesus commands us to seek. That's the second verb. Seek and keep on seeking. And this really is a call to, to seek out God's wisdom and grace in our time of need. It's a word which speaks of searching for something of great value. 
And again, James tells us in James chapter 1, he says that as we face trials of various kinds, the thing that you and I need most is wisdom. And if we ask God, if we seek His wisdom, He will give it to us. But we know that God's wisdom never comes to us in a vacuum or by means of kind of writing in the clouds. No, it comes to us in the very supernatural way of God's Holy Spirit speaking to us through the Word of God. The Bible is God's manual for life. Every circumstance, every situation that you and I will ever face, God has promised that His Word is all we need to live holy and happy lives. And so we need to search. We need to be determined and consistent in our searching. And we are promised that we will find God's answers, God's wisdom. So often people say something like this. Well, I asked God what I should do about this or that, and He never showed me. Really? The reality is that often you will find that people hardly ever read their Bibles. They did not search out godly counsel. They did not apply their minds to search the Scriptures, to read biblical books which could shed light on their predicament. Because all of that is hard work. Searching is not easy. It, it implies that the answers may require some digging before we uncover them. But God has promised that if we are determined to ask Him to meet our needs and we are committed to searching His Word, to find His truth regarding whatever it is that we are facing, we will find what we are looking for. But again today, as Christians in general, we, we hardly pray because we see our practical needs and decisions and careers and futures as something separate, something disjointed from our spiritual lives. As I quoted last week, we kind of live Monday to Saturday as practical atheists, never giving a thought for God and His plans and His purposes and His wisdom and His guidance and His provision, even if we are in church on Sundays. What we find in God's Word is that there is no separation between the sacred and the secular, between the, the physical and the spiritual. Rather, what we see in Scripture is that the spiritual dimension is the true reality which permeates and surrounds this physical world, which encompasses all that is secular. And so it is only as we search for God and we find wisdom in His Word and we are being led by His Holy Spirit that this physical world and all the secular things of this world can be rightly understood, can be seen in their proper place and will fall into place in the bigger scheme of God's purposes for us in this world. And so you may be facing a, a big decision at work. You most likely won't find a, a chapter and a verse which will tell you exactly what you should do in that situation. But that is not how God works. He says to you, ask, 
and keep on asking, bring me your needs, and then search and keep on searching my word for the wisdom that you need, for the spiritual perspective that you need, and you will find what you are looking for. It's not going to just jump out at you like some people wish through that kind of um, method of guidance called SFP, superstitious finger pointing. You know, you just flip the page and point to a verse and think that God's going to tell you what it is that you're supposed to know. No. As you spend time searching the Scriptures, as you spend time growing closer to God through the Holy Spirit, you will find exactly what you need when you need it because God has promised that to you. And then thirdly, he says that we must knock. And again, I think the context of prayer and seeking God to meet our needs, this is more of an invitation to come into his presence than it is a a command to go and knock on the doors of opportunity. This really is the kind of knocking that you would do if you walk down the aisle, down the corridors of the union buildings and you got to the president's office, you knock on the door to let him know that you are outside. One Greek dictionary says that this word means to knock on a door as a means of signaling one's presence to those inside. I'm not saying that, that we have a God who is promoting passivity when it comes to opportunities and and opening doors. No, we must be doers. We must be active. We cannot ask God for help and then search the Scriptures for wisdom and then sit back and do nothing. The Bible expects us to be active doers of the Word, active people in our communities, people who are motivated through the encouragement that we've received from God's promises to to go out there and get things done. Absolutely. So there's certainly an element of, of doing in this command to keep on knocking. But I think the context of the parable is teaching us here about prayer, about coming to God in prayer with boldness firstly and then with determination secondly. And so in this immediate context, it seems that Jesus is calling us to to come into his presence, to keep on knocking, not allowing anything to hinder us from coming into his presence with our requests. Notice he says, knock and it will be open to you. God will open the way into his presence for you. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Christ we are not only instructed here to ask God to meet our needs, but we are commanded as well to search His Word, to discover His will and His wisdom. And now, incredibly, we are told by Jesus that we have personal access. We have access into the very presence of God to to draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. What a wonderful blessings are ours in Christ, through prayer. And yet, 
it is perhaps no surprise then why so many Christians are struggling and limping through this life when we see how little we value and practice this daily privilege of prayer. And so Jesus is teaching us that, that our attitude to prayer must be one of boldness. It must be one of persistent determination as we ask and seek and, and knock. But then in the final place, we see that our attitude to prayer must be one of confidence. Verse 11 to 13. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here we come really to, to what is the crux of the parable. The spiritual explanation of what Jesus has been trying to convey through this story. And it is that because of who God is, we should come to Him with great confidence to not only give us what we need, but to give us abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. You see, Jesus has told us the parable about the man and his neighbor. And although the neighbor was, was grumpy, nevertheless got up and gave the man what he needed. And now Jesus takes this further with, with an illustration. Suppose, he says, you're a father and your son comes and asks, for fish, he's hungry, he has a need. What human father would give him a snake? I think a, a modern translation of this verse could be something like this. Which of you mothers, if your child asks you for roast potatoes on Sunday, would instead give him Brussels sprouts? Of course, you would never, ever do that. Or what if your son asks for an egg? What kind of human father would you be to respond to your child's request with a scorpion? Now here comes the punchline. If you then, as sinful mothers and fathers, Jesus actually calls evil in our sinfulness. If we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, here it comes, how much more will God not give us everything we need? Now, I want you to see that there are two layers to our confidence in praying, which we see in verse 13. The first is our confidence in prayer because God is a good God. He's our heavenly Father. He is perfect. He's just. He is righteous in all His ways. And so we can have confidence when we come to Him because we know that He knows our needs before we even speak them. He knows what we actually need, even when we think we need something else. And so if we as sinful humans know how to respond to our kids in accordance with their needs, with accordance with what's best for them, then how much more will God, who is perfectly good and sovereign and without any influence of sin, how much more will He not do? What is for our good? 
And so that's a, a wonderful assurance for us as Christians then to come to God confidently knowing that He is ready, He is willing, He is able, and He is good to give gifts to those who are His children. But there's a, a second layer to our confidence in prayer. And it comes from, from what Jesus promises the Father will give us when we pray. Now we have to see the flow of the logic of Jesus here. He's, he's made a clear argument from contrast that if we who are evil know how to meet our kids' needs, then how much more will God not meet the needs of his children? It's obvious he will meet them far better than we can ever meet the needs of our children. But I want you to also see that there is a clear argument of contrast here, not just between us and God in giving gifts to our children, but a contrast from the physical gifts which we give to our children to the spiritual gifts which God gives to his children. He says, if we who are evil know how to meet the, the physical needs of our children, how much more will God not meet your and my spiritual needs? Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now at this point, I think we, we reveal our lack of true spirituality if we are honest to assess the response of our hearts to verse 13. Let's be honest. How many of us would have preferred if Jesus had said in verse 13, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then will the heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That would suit us much better, wouldn't it? Because most of our requests are material requests, aren't they? Lord, I, I need a new car. Lord, I need to build onto my house. Lord, I, I need a, a new job or a promotion. Lord, I, I need healing from this or that sickness or disease. Lord, I need to find a husband or a wife. Lord, I, I need children who will listen to me and, and will do well at school. Sound familiar? After all of this exciting stuff of, about our attitude to prayer being one of boldness and determination and, and confidence, are we not tempted to read verse 13 with a, with a slight note of disappointment? When Jesus responds, after all of that, how much more will God not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The, the Holy what? No, no, Lord, you've misunderstood me. I wasn't asking for that. I was asking for an increase. I was asking for a, a happy life. Lord, I think you maybe didn't hear me correctly. Doesn't that reveal just how far our hearts have, have drifted from what is true and lasting and of eternal value? Please see what Jesus does here. Jesus does not ignore our requests for legitimate physical needs. He's already told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, that we must not be anxious about all these earthly things, what to eat and drink and wear, because our Father knows that we need those things, and He will provide us with those things. 
So Jesus is not pretending that our physical needs are irrelevant, they don't matter. But his point in this parable in verse 13 is that our greatest need, our supreme need as Christians is for the Holy Spirit. And so if we as evil parents know how to give good gifts to our children, often above and beyond their actual needs, then how much more will God, our Heavenly Father, not give us this ultimate gift, this supreme gift, which is the very Holy Spirit of God to those who ask Him. This was the great promise of Jesus to His disciples as to why He needed to ascend into heaven. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. What a promise! John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, says Jesus, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is a much needed paradigm shift for us as Christians today in a world which is so saturated and and consumed with the physical with, with the material things of this world, with what's in it for me. And so in the process, we've, we've lost sight of the greatest gift that we could ever receive, which is the Holy Spirit of God living within us. What you and I need as individuals more than anything else in all the world right now is the Holy Spirit's presence and influence in our lives. What you and I need as husbands and wives, as parents and children right now, is more of the Holy Spirit's presence and influence in our lives. What you need in your job more than anything else right now, it's not a promotion, it's not a transfer to another country, it's more of the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling within you to transform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. What we need as a church and as Christians in South Africa right now is more of the Holy Spirit's presence and influence in our lives. Jesus is wanting us to see this morning that our greatest need and His greatest gift are a 100% aligned, the Holy Spirit. And so He urges us today to come to our Heavenly Father in prayer, 
with boldness because we come through Jesus Christ, with determination because He has promised to answer, and now with confidence because He is ready to give us more than we could have ever asked or imagined in giving us Himself. Firstly, Himself in His Son on the cross, and now His Holy Spirit to indwell our lives, to fill us with all grace and wisdom that we need to live this life to the glory of God. So may God help us this morning to to lift our eyes from the the preoccupation that we have with the physical things of this world, the, the secular things of this world. And to see our true need, our need for the Holy Spirit as the one who will lead and will guide us through this physical life. The one who will give us peace and, and, and grace that surpasses all understanding as we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And the one who ultimately gives us hope and an eternal future. And so may God make us here at Honey Ridge a praying people. People who pray like that persistent widow of last week. People who pray like this man with boldness, with determination, with confidence as we seek after the Holy Spirit's indwelling and increasing influence in our lives as Christians. May it never be said, you did not receive because you did not ask. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and good and sovereign and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable today, which speaks right to us in our place of need here in Johannesburg, in South Africa, in this week of chaos that has passed to see that we are a people who are most privileged, most blessed, because we have a God who answers prayer. We have a God who knows exactly what we need and has promised to not only meet our needs, but to give us far more than we could have ever asked or imagined, a God who is giving us Himself, giving us His Son to save us, giving us His Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us for not only this life, but the life to come. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for being a people who pray so seldom, who pray so superficially, for the things of this world. Make us people who pray with boldness and determination and confidence for you to do great things in our midst. Great things in our own hearts. Great things in our families, in our marriages, in our children. Great things in this church. And great things in our community and across the world as we become ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ and His good news of salvation. Oh Lord, won't you make us into a praying people, and a people who pray for that which is our ultimate need, which is more 
and more of you. Oh Lord, as the disciples came to you and asked, won't you teach us how to pray like you? That you may be glorified. That your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.